Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. So Golden State, to me, can smell it. They're now just 48 minutes away from going back to the NBA Finals, and they know it because they went for the kill, the kill job. Last night, Steve Kerr played his stars nearly 40 minutes each. He knew that he had a boot on their throat, and that while Miami and Boston are beating the hell out of each other in the Eastern Conference Finals, best that Golden State rest and recover and get as much time off as they can. Also, what you don't want to do is give a really resilient Dallas team, a team that's gotten off the mat numerous times already, what you do not want to do is give them a reason to believe. So you get a boot on their throat and you finish them. So what they did last night was not give them that reason to believe, and they broke them. I mean, that's a good, tough Dallas team that, to me, Golden State just broke. Phoenix couldn't break them. Everything the Suns tried to do only made Dallas that much tougher, that much stronger. Golden State, though, to me, just broke them into a thousand pieces. And the amazing thing, and this is what makes them so dangerous— the guy with the finishing move was not Steph. It was not Clay. It wasn't Draymond dominating the game in every way that you know he can. No. The guy who broke Dallas is the same guy we were talking about late last week. That guy is Andrew Wiggins. And if you want the exact time of death, it's right here. Brunson defends, snaps it outside to Wiggins. Goes by Bullock. Oh! I've got to see this again. Oh, that's a poster. I'm sorry. That is a poster. That should be an end one, if anything. Yeah, like, I don't know about you, but watching that game last night, my reaction was the exact same thing. Like, holy bleep. That was so filthy, so dirty. I mean, monstrous. Bodies were caught. Rims were wrecked. The city of Dallas was destroyed. And it was premeditated. That was not just a, a spur of the moment. You know, should I lay it up? Should I dunk it? Kind of thing. That was arm cocked all the way back and just swinging the hammer. Two feet on the dotted line, elevation and destruction. That was the sound of the door being slammed in the Mavericks' face. An incredible moment. When asked about it, Wiggins said, quote, I just saw rim. I just saw rim, mate. I just saw cat, mate. I just saw rim. I just saw rim is a great line. We see rim, mate. We see cat, mate. Right, we see rim, and I don't know about we or him or them. I saw pain. I saw misery for Luca because that was brutal. A brutal spot to be in in a brutal ending to a great season for the Mavs. Like, I'm not sure what was worse. Luka trying to sell a foul on that play or the ref Mark Davis buying it. Actually, I do know what's worse. Davis buying it. So embarrassing. I mean, that was disgraceful. It's despicable. Despicable. Man, some people just think they're God. Wiggins clearly did not foul him. But even if he drove a Mack truck 
into the lane and ran Luka over on that play. You finish like that, man, it's play on. Do not blow the whistle. And the call isn't even the worst part of that play. It's how emphatic Mark Davis was with that call. He takes a couple of hop steps before making that call. You know, really getting his body into it. He put his back into it. He summoned summoned up all the energy he had, and he threw his hand and his hips. He threw that right arm signal like it was a right cross to finish a fight. And then the dude could not have been more proud of himself for that call. It's despicable. And thanks, Alvin. Andrew, you think this is your moment? Hell no. Hell no. It's mine. You give me that. Get the hell out of the way. Hell of a moment for Mark Davis. Because, of course, this is the guy we pay to see. Of course, this is the show we want. The Mark Davis show. Not the Western Conference Finals. Even Luka. Even Luka admitted it was a hell of a dunk. That was impressive. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I saw the video again. I was like, oof. That was, that was pretty incredible. You know? I wish I had those bunnies. <laughs> Luka's the best. The guy who was moving his puppies in game one. Moving them puppies tonight. Was showing off the hops last night. And then he chased it moments later with a put-back dunk. Curry dribbles it, crossover, down the lane on Brunson, pulls up from 14, front rim miss, jammed home by Wiggins! He gets another dunk! So if you're surprised that Wiggins is showing up like this in this postseason, you clearly have not been paying attention because he's in the perfect situation in Golden State. These guys love him. They hype him all the time. They need him. They respect him. Hey, but don't take my word for it. Listen to Draymond after the game. It was absolutely incredible. When you dunk on a guy, it's absolutely amazing. When you dunk on a superstar, it's even better. And for, for Wiggs to go dunk on a superstar and Luka uh, like that, it's, it's obviously a huge momentum booster for us. But, you know, for, for us, that's what we always ask Wiggs to do. We're always asking him to go to the rim, attack, and be aggressive. Go dunk the ball. Forget tr- going to lay the ball up. Like, no one can jump with him. That's how we feel. And he's been attacking the rim like that, and he got a good one tonight. This what you guys don't get about Draymond. Like, a lot of you hate Draymond, and I can't take you off that point. But almost every time Draymond has something to say, it resonates. It makes sense. I mean, he's so right about Wiggins. And he is doing it on both ends of the floor. And I've said it before. I'll say it again right now. He may not be the official Luka stopper because there is no such thing. But he's as close as you get to being a Luka stopper. He held Luka to 8 of 15 from the field last night when they were matched up. Wiggins has not just been as good as you can be against Luka. He's been even better than anybody else in these playoffs. And then he's giving you this. I mean, that's enough of an ask. But then he's giving you this at the other end. Across, takes the logo, goes left on Brunson, driving in, skipped it over to Wiggins. Wiggins puts it on the deck. He'll drive the glass, goes up. For oh, the yeah. oh, my goodness. Oh, they're going to call it an offensive foul. An offensive foul. Can you imagine being the guy to call an offensive foul on that play? But as far as Wiggins doing what he's doing on both ends of the floor, it's almost not fair. 27 points, 11 rebounds, elite defense, and that filth. Do you know how good you have to be to rip the spotlight from Steph on a night when Curry went for 31 and was shimmying again? 
You've got to be that good. And Wiggins was that good. And then you've got Steph, and you've got Draymond, and you've got Clay and Kevon Looney on top of all that. Because don't sleep on what Looney is doing in this series. He's been a beast. Nine points, 12 boards, four assists last night. 21-12 and 12 in game two. Like Dallas has no answer for this guy either, and he is punishing them. That's the thing about Golden State. They're getting better as the playoffs go on. Draymond dancing in Memphis while getting beaten by 50 feels like it was about a million years ago. But it wasn't even two weeks ago. That Warriors team and this Warriors team seemed totally different. And it was only two weeks ago. I mean, it's so cliche, but it really is championship DNA. That Steve Kerr coaching his ass off, making adjustments on the fly, and working around injuries. That's crazy depth that they have developed over the past two years. It's like, damn, Rome, all you do is home for these guys. Right, but all they do is things like this. Like, Otto Porter Jr. makes key contributions. He goes down. Right, and Moses Moody is coming up with big offensive boards. Like, where do they get these guys? How are they this deep? How are all these guys always ready to step up? Like, despite the injuries, this team is playing better ball right now than they were three weeks ago. And the scariest thing is, I don't even think they've maxed out. I don't even think they've peaked. I think they're still getting better. I think there's another gear. And they know it. They can smell it. They can taste it. They now have a chance to wrap this up, then rest up, while the Heat and the Celtics beat the crap out of each other. No, the series isn't over But the series is over. The Mavs know it. The Warriors know it. We all know it. Oh, and one more thing. Let's just get all of your I just saw emails out of the way right now. Let's just get them all out of the way. I just saw. I just saw next. We just saw. Mom and Dad, I just saw the bottom of the well. I just saw the Monterey Bay. I just saw an oak tree. I I hate that that's made a comeback. I just saw the Kitchen Bay view window. What I'm saying to you is this. Last night, Wiggins punished the rim. Every Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 12 noon Eastern, or Pacific, I should say, you clones punish my ears. Oh, Oh my goodness. With prices soaring at the pump, Discover has your back with cash back. Use Discover to earn 5% cash back at gas stations and Target now through June on up to $1,500 in purchases when you activate. We know every dollar matters right now, but you can count on us. Get up to $75 cash back this quarter with Discover card. Limitations do apply. Learn more at discover.com slash rewards, discover.com slash rewards. He is Howard Beck. What's going on, Howard? How are you? 
Doing well, Romy. How are you? Good, dude. Good. Thank you for joining us once again. You know, there are a number of places, Howard, where I could start, but only one, really, when you think about it. What was your immediate reaction when you saw that dunk from Andrew Wiggins over Luca? Uh, holy something, something, something that I can't say on radio. That's it. I think. Yeah. Was, was in my head. Uh, incredible. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. And it's funny because Wiggins, you know, over the course of this Warriors season, there have been these games. Andrew Wiggins has a game. And remember, he started the season really strong, kind of faded for a while, you know, and, and we, this happens kind of annually, even when he was in Minnesota, where there's, Wiggins has a, a great couple of weeks, and we think, well, this is, this is the Wiggins everybody always pr- projected, expected, and he's starting to emerge, and then, you know, he kind of fades again. And with the Warriors this season, he'll have a game like this, and this happened, you know, early in the season, various points in the season, and his teammates, when they're asked about it afterward, will just kind of, like, have that kind of knowing chuckle, like, yeah, that's the guy we see, and that's the, we keep telling him, like, that's, that's what you got to do every night, and you can do this. Um, but it, it's just kind of that's just kind of the story of his his career is that you know he kind of he has those moments where he can be electrifying and you see all the athleticism and all the aggression that made him you know a number one pick and a guy who was touted going back to I think you know sophomore junior year of high school but the aggression isn't always there when it is it's spectacular um, that said and I don't mean this to be a critique I mean look he's had to do so much defensively in this series, just being the guy to go tangle with Luca, basically matching him minute for minute. Luca goes to the bench. Wiggins goes to the bench. Luca comes back in. Wiggins comes back in. So it's not like they're expecting a ton offensively, but when you see that moment and on Luca, that dunk, um, just spectacular, electrifying, all of it, um, a lot of fun. And uh, it, it, it's good to see. It's always, I, Romy, I just, I, I love seeing guys who can rewrite, the script of their career. Well, just when we think we've got to have a beat on them and, you know, and, and sometimes to the negative when a guy can, you know, find, you know, who, you know, what, what role best fits him, find the right team, find the right surroundings and get the best out of himself. That's what Wiggins is doing right now. Credit to him and credit to the Warriors. I think that's a great point you make, Howard. Extremely well said. I, I agree with you about that when it comes to Andrew Wiggins and his career and kind of reinventing himself and rewriting the narrative. But what an amazing moment that was, and there's so much more to it than just that moment. Let me ask you this. If we were to go back to the 2019 finals when Kevin Durant and Clay Thompson went down with injuries and Golden State lost to Toronto, did that feel like that was the end of a chapter for the Warriors, or did that feel like maybe even the end of their era? It did that night, and look, we're all prisoners of the moment sometimes. And, you know, I certainly wrote that night from Oracle Arena, where it was the end for Oracle Arena, too, let's not forget. It felt like the final chapter. It felt like something was ending. It really did. Um, The devastation of seeing Durant go down with the Achilles injury and then Clay go down with that injury that night, um, everything about that run felt just over just fatigued just just it was it was just the the attrition that um five straight years of playing deep into june will do to a team and you knew durant was probably leaving even you know whether he was healthy or not and so it's not that it was impossible for them ever to pick it up and go again it's just that it didn't look that likely at that moment and so you know everyone's writing postscripts on the era and and i did too that night and and i will you know, recall Draymond Green up on the podium that night, Steph on the podium that night, just saying, like, this isn't over. Like, this this isn't a great, you know, moment, but 
there's there's you know there's life left in this thing and you can't know it until they actually do it right so and especially even on that night with all the bravado that they showed and saying we'll be back you can't know that the next two years we're going to go as, as difficult as they did where clay thompson would have a, a second straight injury that he'd have to come back from uh, but the, the warriors have done an incredible job of seeing the big picture of staying patient of treating those two years the, the gap years as basically being a time to kind of reassess retool um focus a lot on player development and you know where would they be right now if not for you know first of all using the durant free agency as a means to then do dual sign and trades to get d'angelo russell who i think they knew at the time was not going to be a long-term piece but they did it because it got them something of value and then flipping d'angelo russell for wiggins and the pick that became jonathan kuminga doing a great job of developing kuminga and moody and of course jordan Poole. Wiseman's been hurt, but that's it's no one's fault. But they, you know, they've done a great job the last couple of years of being opportunistic, finding fitting role players around these guys, and then you know everything else is 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 Steph, Clay, and Draymond just doing what they've always done. They're a little older, maybe not doing it quite at the at the highest level that they did during that five year run, but they clearly have life left it's really fun to see six finals in eight years Romy this will be their six finals in eight years no one's done that since the Bulls in the 90s I mean Howard organizationally they're absolutely incredible it's amazing like to your point they didn't they didn't bounce back the following year of course it got worse Steph Curry got hurt Clay got hurt once again yet here we are six times in eight years you know as you mentioned they're not the same team they were five years ago in fact how would this Warriors team compare to the ones before it in your mind it's a really interesting thing to think about because, you know, that was at least two different versions in that five-year run, right? The first two years pre-Kevin Durant and then the, the three years with Durant. And, you know, it, the 73-9 and nine team, which, let's, let's, lest we forget, they went 73-9 and nine in the regular season before they got Kevin Durant. And like that team was an all – like, that is one of the greatest teams of all time, and the only reason we're not still talking about it that way is because – Draymond Green got suspended in the, in the middle of the finals and they lost to the Cavs, you know, blown 3-1 lead, all that. Um, but that was an incredible team. And that was before they got Kevin Durant. And then they got Durant. And like, it's hard to compare any version of the Warriors to the team with Durant because when do you have two recent MVPs on the same roster um, playing at that level? So this one, I think this one's just interesting. I, just, I think this one's just obviously very satisfying for the Warriors themselves. And I think for everybody, all of us who are just watching it and, and assessing it because we did think that they were probably done, that they've been able to, to bring it back and, and kind of recapture the magic I think is, is, is incredible and admirable. But on top of that, I think people kind of got burned out on the Warriors. The public kind of got tired of, of seeing them and, and the Durant edition just made them feel like the evil empire. And that was how they were referred to at the time. This feels more organic again, like the first Warriors run back in in fourteen fifteen did, and I think it's it's made them 
more embraceable again as they as they once were. No, I think you're right. I think it's fascinating. I think it's fascinating that they've rebuilt this thing. I think, frankly, frankly, they're more embraceable. They're more likable without KD. I'm not going to say they're better, but they might be good enough. They're amazing in and of themselves, and I love the rebuild. I love the retooling. I just organizationally, I can't stress this enough. I've got so much respect for them. Howard Beck joining us. Howard, before you go, what about on the other side? You've got Miami and Boston beating the crap out of each other. It's been as physical as expected, maybe even more so. What kind of thoughts do you have about that matchup as it's played out over the first three games? I mean, that one really is a war of attrition, right? Like I, I, Tyler Hero uh, is, is apparently not playing tonight because of a groin. And like so many players on both teams have either been in and out of the series because of injury or playing through it. Um, and it, it's, it's feeling a little bit like, you know, it's, it was such a cliche back in the, the, the day that, you know, the, oh, the Eastern Conference was all the physical rough them up. You know, they're going to just beat the heck out of each other. Um, but it feels like that, right? It feels like a throwback to uh, to, to those days of, of it just being a grinded out physical series. I mean, two elite defensive teams, so that's part of it too. And it's the personality of some of these guys. It's Jimmy Butler and Marcus Smart. Um, but you know, if it, it's just starting to feel like a series where injuries are, are going to take a toll more on one team than another, and, and it's whoever survives, this is probably going to be the team that's slightly healthier. And meanwhile, the Warriors, if they can finish the sweep are going to be sitting back just enjoying watching the Celtics and he keep beating the heck beating the heck out of each other because the Warriors will be the beneficiaries of that in the finals, presumably. But that will also make for an interesting clash in styles when that moment comes, for sure. All right, so Howard, one last thought. You had a great piece earlier this month about swearing in the NBA and the fact that the league is cracking down on it in a big way. I mean, I'd even make the argument that the league could make a hell of a lot of money if they had an uncensored feed of games on pay-per-view where fans could hear absolutely everything that is said on the court. I mean, how much do you think the fans are bothered by obscenities on social media and in media sessions? Like, who is the league legislating this for exactly? I think they're legislating it for themselves, to be honest. This is league officials, I think, overthinking it a little bit and and still being in a mindset of, of an earlier time in, in this society. It's 2022, People can hear every one of these words and far more on their streaming services and on satellite TV and cable TV. The only place that you don't hear this stuff now is on broadcast TV, which is still governed by the FCC. This stuff's everywhere. Society's kind of evolved on this, and people, not everybody I'm sure, likes it. But I don't think, to my knowledge, as I wrote this story, and certainly no league officials cited anything like this, there was no groundswell of... Uh, complaints or people lighting up phone lines saying you got to get these guys to stop dropping F-bombs in press conferences. So, you know, the NBA's uh, rationale is that this is about maintaining decorum. They like to use that word a lot. We're seeing it also with bench decorum with the Mavericks being fined. They're really big on decorum. And this is part of it. But I don't think the average fan, whether adults or kids, are, really care if occasionally an F-bomb slips through because a guy is really passionate or, or, or angry or excited or whatever up on the podium. And the fact that the league is even warning guys when they see F-bombs in print for if I had a one-on-one with somebody or, or somebody, you know, interviews somebody, uh, you know, off camera, and they print that the guy said something, something, F something – they're even warning them for that, which to me just feels 
very heavy-handed. The Players Union certainly thinks it's heavy-handed. I believe it will not be the most important discussion in the next CBA, but it's certainly going to be on the list. I know this. The fans are not demanding decorum. The fans do not love decorum, but I'll tell you what they do love. Man, they love the real. They love authenticity. They love what's authentic. It just seems to me so hypocritical that an entire arena can chant, bleep Kyrie, bleep Kyrie, or bleep Joel yet they're coming down on all these teams and these benches and these players. It makes no sense. He's a senior NBA writer at Sports Illustrated. He is a SiriusXM NBA analyst. He's co-host of the Crossover NBA show with Chris Mannix and Howard Beck, which is a great listen. Good friend of the program, too. He is Howard Beck. Howard, thank you very much. Thanks for helping me get the week started. Appreciate it so much. Always a pleasure, Jim. Go Aggies. Go Gauchos. No one close to you should have to endure that dreaded knock on the door. The knock that comes from a police officer who must tell your loved one that you were killed in a car crash. It's a message that gets even worse when they learn that your death may have been prevented if you had only been wearing your seatbelt. The simple fact is, regardless of what type of car you ride in, seatbelt use is the single most effective way to stay alive in a crash. That's why the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is spreading the word we want to raise the profile of seatbelt safety so we can save lives. So, whether you're going on a cross-country trip or just up the street, please buckle up. Don't risk it. And remember, click it or ticket. Brought to you by NHTSA. Now, you know me. I'm all about positivity. I'm all about the glass being half full. I'm not here to hate. I'm here to make it better, not worse. So, let me start with Thomas. Because he took home his second PGA Championship and he earned it. He earned the hell out of it. He started the day seven off the lead and was one over through six. The bogey on six was both the best bogey and the worst bogey ever. The worst because my guy absolutely shanked it off the tee. Not even my words, but his. Quote, I just cold shanked it. I don't really know how else to say it. End of quote. Neither do I. But the fact that he did not let that shank ruin his day is impressive as hell. And the fact that he managed to escape with just that bogey was even more impressive. Almost as impressive is that bird that he dropped on 11 from about a mile away. Thomas, huge swing of the putter there. Put enough energy into this ball. Just kind of think yesterday, the par fives, costly for Thomas. Yeah. Played the par fives in one over in round three. And with birdies at nine and 11, don't rule him out. Justin Thomas now has emerged. <laughs> don't rule him out is right. So after going one over on the day with that shank, he went four under the rest of the way. He got into a playoff with Will Zalatoris and then unleashed this blast on the second playoff hole. He loves it now. He nailed that. What a goal shot. That was brass. That was so brass. And if you did not know that he was going to win the Wanamaker after that bomb, you definitely knew it after he walked in that putt to finish out that hole. That was confident as hell. That was a Tiger Woods putt and snatch. Then he closed it out on 18 with this putt. From seven down, the start of the day, to two putts for a second major. 
That's all he needed. Five years later, after his win at Quail Hollow, it's just in time again at the PGA Championship. It's a hell of a win. It's a hell of a moment. And it's about time he got that second major. And all the credit to him for doing it. And I had to start by hyping up JT because he is the winner. He is the champion. But unfortunately, it was not all good yesterday. In fact, some of that was pretty excruciating. I'm talking about Mito Pereira. I'm talking about one of the all-time meltdowns. And I hate to pile on. Like, I'm not about that. That does not make me happy. That does not make me feel better about me. I hate to say it because I've got a lot of respect for him and especially for the way he handled things in the aftermath. But that would be like saying that Mary Todd Lincoln did a great presser after her trip to the theater. I mean, what I saw yesterday was so brutal, so excruciating, so cringy. Like, part of me doesn't even want to talk about it. And I'm not even the one who put it in the water on 18. This is such a good dude also. And because he is such a good dude, I really hate to do this. And honestly, it's going to hurt both of us. Probably you more than me, Mito. But it's going to hurt me too. Like, I don't want to make it any worse by piling on. I don't get any joy out of that. But you left me no choice. As well as you handled that implosion in the aftermath, the fact is, you never want to hear your name mentioned with Jean Vandeveld, ever. Because J-V-D-V is the G-O-A-T of choking. But I hate to say it, my guy. You may have put yourself right up there. At least Vandeveld could say that there were bad conditions or that it was a weird track. And he could say that at least he got into a playoff. Mito didn't even get into the playoff. And I hate to say it, but everything that happened on 18 yesterday was entirely of his doing, entirely of his making. He just barreled right by JVDV, shoved that dude right out the way, and said, hey, y'all, watch this. Hey, y'all, watch this. He went into yesterday with a three-shot lead. He was playing incredible golf through 54 holes. He was still playing well enough through 71 holes. In fact, the thing that makes that meltdown even more painful was the fact that he was this close, this close on 17 to closing it out. He's made some big par putts. Can he make a big birdie putt right here? To take a two-shot lead to the last. Oh, no. One roll away. Oh, man. How about that? Just half an inch. Like, how the hell does that ball not drop? How does that not drop? And if it does, then he does take that two-shot lead into 18. And maybe he's not yipped out of his mind as he begins that walk to 18. And again, not to be critical and to make a statement like he was yipped out of his mind, but he admitted as much after the fact, to which I give him credit for. But if somehow, some way, and I don't know how it didn't, if that putt does drop, maybe he's not yipped out of his mind. In fact, he probably feels pretty damn good about himself just moments away from one of the best stories ever. Instead, he punctured the gas tank, was leaking fuel all the way to the 18th tee, then proceeded 
to soak the tea box with gasoline and he starts to flick lit blue tips all over the space with this shot. He's going with a lot of club again. Tiger 07. Look at that follow through. He did the same thing yesterday. It's gone. Below, but this is going right. Yesterday was up the left side. Where is it? Oh my yeah. goodness, it's in the water. Oh my goodness. That was not the club. That all happened so quick. Really did. That was not the club when you're so amped up with all this adrenaline, he could hit anything down there. Golf's so great, isn't it? When, because it's a gentleman's sport, and you never ever want to use the C word when discussing somebody in golf, that even when guys who know know are watching it and charged with broadcasting it, they have to be so genteel about the whole thing. Like, when you listen to that in playback, there, that was all code for, oh, my God, the quarterback is toast. He just choked. But you can't say that. Um, play that again. Listen, I mean, it's so expertly done and with such class because you can't say what's really happening, but we all know what's really happening, especially the guy who just did it. He's going with a lot of club again. Tiger 07. Look at that follow through. He did the same thing yesterday gone. below, but this is going right. Yesterday was up the left side. Where is it? Oh, my yeah. goodness. It's in the water. Oh, my goodness. Oh, just lots of that oh, my goodnesses. And look at that follow that through. And so quick. Really did. That just was happened so quickly. So and basically, like, this guy's life went up in flames so quickly. Anyway, that was ugly. I mean, he may have done that the day before, but that was one of the ugliest swings Ever. That looked like my main dude, Chuck Barkley, on the tee. Hell, Chuck himself would have been embarrassed by that swing. That looked like Mito was having a stroke during that stroke. He finished that shot like he was inside of a phone booth. Like he just seized up on the follow-through. Like he was having a stroke during the stroke. You talk about picking the absolute worst moment to have your absolute worst moment. The 72nd hole of a major that you're leading is pretty much that time. And again, I'm not in any way celebrating this. Like, I feel horribly for this guy. But that was a horrible time to have a horrible moment. That was Phil Mickelson in Wingfoot. Hefty. 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 Stop doing that, Alvin. Hefty. 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 Alvin, please stop. I want to finish my thought. Hefty. 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 Hefty crashing his way out of winning the U.S. Open. Gotcha. Is the last time I've seen somebody's nerves get to them that badly and somehow as bad as that was it only got worse from there because his next shot went over the green but he still had a look unlikely but he still had a look if he could get up and down but he hit this chip instead the other big factor it's downhill and it's going to move a long way left to right down breeze and he's just coming down you see he didn't go and have a look and it's not coming down might not even stay on. Oh, there it goes. That's it. You saw it, Nick. He never went over and... Uh, you got to 
completely surveyed it. Alvin. I'm not here to pile on, but apparently Alvin is. Like at that point, never mind, Mito. <laughs> oh. I just wanted somebody at that point to put me out of my misery. Never mind him. And I actually had money on Justin Thomas. I just couldn't bear to watch that train jump the tracks altogether. Just like I wasn't glad, or I was glad I wasn't there when the Miano Pan jumped that curb and launched his car into somebody's living room. Hit delete clones. I just said it for you. Anyway, back to Mito. He did start the fire. We've covered this so many times. He hit a gas line. The car exploded. The house exploded. He actually did start the fire. Anyway, back to the take. Hefty. It, it, oh, Alvin's giving me a case of jungle Tourette's. It was horrific. I mean, a par wins it. Even a bogey gets you into a playoff. And he comes up with the double bogey and misses the playoff altogether. At that point, he might have been thinking, yeah, well, if somebody had told me before the tournament, you know, being that I'm ranked 100th in the world, if somebody had told me before that tournament that I would finish third overall and be one hole away from winning it all, I would have taken that. Yeah, I guess. But what if they told you it was your tournament to lose? And on 18, not only did you blow the win, but you blew a look at even getting into a playoff. Would you have taken that? Probably not. Then again, it's probably for the best because the way that dude was rattled, that three-hole playoff would have been scarier than the Saw franchise. The thing is, all that said, it was a choke for the ages, an all-time choke, but this dude has all-time character. Because he immediately knew that he choked away a major. He knew what happened. He knew what he did. And he owned it. And he admitted how nervous he was. And he tried to laugh it off. I mean, here is some serious, serious show of character. Uh, I, re um, I mean, I wasn't that... I mean, I, I was okay. Yeah. I just... It was so weird. I mean, you see, it's uh, not a good stream, but... Um... I just wasn't, wasn't thinking about the, the water. Uh, it's weird that I just hit it in the water. I told my car, like, it's weird that it went in. But uh, I guess it's, you have so much pressure in your body that you maybe you don't even know what you're doing. Your best friend, Joaquin Neiman, called you fearless. We know this is not going to stop you from succeeding in the future. Thanks once again for joining okay. us. Thank you, guys. I mean, so classy. So classy, except... His friend who called him fearless was wrong because he just said it. I had so much fear in my body that maybe I didn't know what was going on. But, I mean, what a, an amazing thing to admit when nobody ever does. I mean, credit to you, my guy. Credit to you. I mean, like, he could even laugh at it. You can laugh. I'm still cringing. So, what an amazing change of fortune. What a great, great win for JT. And I hate to say it, but what an incredible choke job for Pereira. That tee shot is not only just going to keep him up for the next few nights, that might keep him up for the next few years. Hopefully not for the rest of his life. Such a good dude. Such a good dude. Good player. Horrible implosion. 
great dude, horrible implosion. And instead of one of the best stories ever, we get one of the biggest choke jobs ever, unfortunately. So, quick question. Why is Old Trapper Beef Jerky so amazing? Let's start with the fact that it is a family-run business. A family business which stands by quality and produces the world's best beef jerky. Now, I, I've made this point many, many times, and I want to make it again right now. Beef jerky is not just beef jerky. I think some of you go to the store, and you reach for the beef jerky, and you think it's all the same. In fact, you might not even know what you're buying. That's a big mistake. Stop making that mistake. All beef jerky is not the same. In fact, there's nothing like Old Trapper. It is simply the best. Four mouth-watering flavors, so you can get your choice of whatever you want. Myself, I like them all the same. I bounce back and forth between each and every one of them. So you can do the same thing. They come in four-ounce bags. If you need to learn, do it that way. If you already know what you want, go with the 18-ouncer. That way there's enough for everybody. The entire unit, the entire family, the entire team. If you do not see it, ask for Old Trapper by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what is your beef? Frank Nabilo is my guest. Frank, it is so good to have you back. How are you? Great, thanks, Jim. Long time no speak. Looking forward to it. Yeah, me too, Frank. Thanks so much. Great to have you back. So if we were to go back to the start of play yesterday, Frank, and consider that Mito Pereira had a three-shot lead and that the guys who were closest to him were not big names, what kind of expectations did you have for him going into Sunday? Um, to be honest, Jim, we're a little deflated because, you know, you know, unless you're really inside golf, the leaderboard didn't exactly look that compelling. So we were hoping for guys like McElroy to at least add some flavor to it, get off to a good start, which he did. And, you know, there was an outside chance too, Justin Thomas, but he was seven back and the record for a comeback was seven. So it's one of those ones where, you know, when you get ready to do it, you just, you literally follow the ball. And um, I, I was really impressed with Mito Pereira. Uh, you know, when we try to look through in his bio, I've watched him a little bit over the last 12 months, but you know, this is a kid that was apparently when he was 14 or 15 was, you know, a lot of people thought he was going to be really good and he quit golf for two years. So, you know, there's always that question mark, but, you know, I, I look back, Jim, if he had about a 15 footer on 17 that hung on the front edge, if that goes in, he had about a thousand different ways to play the 18th hole, but you know, ifs and buts, that's the beauty of this game. Frank Nablo is joining us. You know, Frank, I was going to get to that point, but since you got me into it, let me follow you right there. Like, how different is the conversation that you and I are having right now if he gets that one more roll from that putt on 17 and goes to 18 with that two-shot lead? It's, it's totally different. I mean, you're looking at a different career. I remember Jeff Sluman I played against and all that. He won the PGA Championship. That was his first win. I think it was 1988. But even that, people think, oh, you know, that you sort of put the word fluke in there. And then just going through doing the homework, you know, people forget he shot 65 on Sunday to beat a really good field, actually. And then the next one that was in the same category, believe it or not, is John Daly in 1991. So it happens very rarely. And they both had really good careers. So with Mito Pereira, and I'm glad we had uh, Neiman. Neiman actually joined the broadcast uh, when uh, Mito was just about to start the back nine through 10 and 11. So he presented a lot of insight. They have the same instructor, Eduardo uh, McKeel, and that, and they even swing a little alike. And, and he just he has said, hey, Mito's MO is he's fearless. And right up till about 30 minutes to go, that's exactly what he looked like. Yeah, Frank, different, totally different story. Hmm, Frank, I was going to say, now that you've had some time to think about it and reflect upon it, how would you sum up what happened to him on the 18th hole? Um, I, I think the realization 
you go back to 17, you've, you've got to sort of go back to Saturday because the whole play almost identical to what it did on Saturday, and he laid up on Saturday. And I actually mentioned that to Ian Baker Finch, who was also on the broadcast. You know, he's like, he made a decision yesterday to lay up. Today, what's he going to do? And I think he stood on that team. He's like, you know, I've got one chance to win this, and that's knock it on the green. He had a really good shot, was unlucky it rolled down the hill. And and I thought up until then he was totally fine, but but once the putt stopped short, and he you know, 18 is the hardest hole on the golf course, and I think it it really helped Justin Thomas because Thomas thought he was at least two back, so he played the hole very aggressively. Now Mito all of a sudden stands on that tee and and knows he's got four to win, and um, you're playing the hardest hole on the golf course. There's one place you can't hit, which is right, and in any sport, whenever you say don't your brain registered what the don't is. And I'm sure in his head was don't go right, and that's exactly where it went. Game, set, and match. Frank Dablo joining us. You know, Frank, so Justin Thomas shoots 74 on Saturday, seven shots back to start the day, one over yesterday after shanking that drive on six. So when did you first start thinking that he might have a shot to win it? To be honest, on 17. Um, mm. I know we talked about him a little earlier, but you're right. You know, he, he was lucky. Actually, the sixth hole was pivotal for everybody. Cameron Young, also playing, you know, a, a rookie, looking like he had a really good chance. He made an unbelievable three on that. Will Zelatoris, who also made the playoff, hit it unplayable over the greens, dropped it on the car path, car, car path excuse me, made an incredible up and down for a bogey. And, and it just looked like if any one of those guys were to go on and win, the sixth hole was really important. Um, but, you know, to answer your question, follow through, you know, I, I legitimately didn't think that, that, that Thomas had a chance until 17. And, and then he still needed help, and that's exactly how it panned out. But you know, he now has a Hall of Fame career, 15 wins, two PGA championships and a player. So it changed his life um, for the rest of his career. He's a star now. You beat me to it, Frank. I was going to say, does a second major and winning it the way he did with a tremendous comeback, does that move him into a different class now going forward? And I guess so, right? Yeah, totally. Because, you know, number one, a double major winner. I just referenced that seven shots. So he ties a record. Um, you throw in the Players' Championship, 15 wins. Uh, people have gone into the Hall of Fame for far less. I know his career is far from finished when you know, he's barely, not even 30. So, you know, you're looking at a guy, though, that now in this sort of almost a post-Tiger Woods, at least he's still playing, but you're looking in this era where, you know, who's going to be the guy that's going to clock up five, six, maybe seven major championships? So he becomes in that conversation. You know, Frank, you mentioned Tiger, so let me ask you about him. He battled on Friday to make the cut, and then he appeared to be in really serious pain on Saturday before he withdrew. Before we get into the decision to withdraw, what did you make of what you saw from him and his game at Southern Hills? Um, number one, I'm glad he played because he brings an energy to the event. And, and uh, you know, he actually played alongside Jordan Spieth and Rory McIlroy the first two days. They were on the good side of the draw, too, which actually is another thing, just to go slightly back to Justin Thomas. He felt like he'd been stung after two rounds. He, he was six under. He led that morning wave, and then the wind dropped. So so Woods, McIlroy, going back to that, they're on the right side of the draw. So w when Tiger started off, I mean, on his very, very first hole, the 10th hole, he gets into three feet, birdies his first hole. We haven't seen him since Augusta. It's like... It's, it's game on again. Uh, he just has that ability to, to raise the level of his own game and the championship. I thought it would hurt Spieth and McElroy, but McElroy played flawlessly on that first day. But the second day in good conditions, I mean, Woods was, I mean, he was done to rights. It looked like he was going to miss the cut. Um, and then 
16, I know it's a whole lot cover, but, you know, he hit, it was vintage woods. He hit a good drive, but the long iron he hit, he hit the closest second shot into this 527-yard par four out of anyone in the field that day. Birdies that, makes the cut. Um, conditions then changed again on Saturday, and I know you're going to ask me, but I don't fault him pulling out. I really don't. I mean, it was cold, wet, and miserable, and he did not look like uh, he was walking. Um, he looked like he was walking gingerly, to be honest. Yeah, I'll be honest. I Not only would I not fault him for it, part of me wonders why he tries to play through it, given the pain he's in, but I think you make a pretty good argument. Frank, like he says he fully intends to play at St. Andrews in July. Based on what you've seen from him this year and how that course sets up, what kind of expectations would you have for him there? Well, St. Andrews is a good venue for him. Not only did he win in 2000, but it's people are going to say it's links golf, but it's relatively flat. I know you've got to walk up, up and down a little bit. I know there's a U.S. Open at Brookline before that. I wouldn't be surprised if he has a little visit to Brookline, but if it's a, US, a, a true U.S. Open setup with thick rough, then I think it's a no-show because... You know he's he's you know he's made a glass now he really is so if he has a swipe at a sort of five six inch rough I mean he could snap you know all pun intended but so I I think it would be wiser if it's a really tough setup for the U.S. Open then he skips it and gets ready gets ready for a golf course that not only has he won at but actually would play to him um, there's a little bit of bounce it's a very strategic golf course uh, it, and he just has good feeling and it's 150th. So, I mean, there's just too many things that say he's going to be there. Frank, one last thought about Tiger. I mean, you've been around the game a long, long time. For people who just started following golf when Tiger was dominating and maybe now are looking or waiting for the next Tiger Woods, I mean, how impossible is that? Is it safe to say that we're not going to see somebody dominate the tour in the way that he did for as long as he did and that folks just kind of need to let that go once and for all? Yeah, you, that's a great question, Jim. I, I, the only way we're going to get another dominant player is, is the equipment, in my opinion, has to stabilize first. Because if I go back, you know, I played in the 80s and then the 90s. I remember first playing with Woods when he came out. And we thought the days of a Jack Nicklaus was sort of over. But if, if you look, once the middle Wood came and he, he came out of that new generation that had a middle driver, things, everybody went to the solid ball. And, and you, you, you sort of had five to ten years of everybody doing roughly the same things with the same equipment. So if you take a snapshot of that, he was so dominant. We would say in the, I know you, Steve Elkington, a lot, we would say in the, in, the, in the locker room, it's a joke. There'd always be a discussion every day on what Tiger Woods did on one hole. It'd be a par five and say you hit a two on it, and, and someone would say, Woods hit an eight on it. you go, no, that's not possible. He would do a freakish thing every single day. And, I mean, he was winning majors, not by one or two, but when he won that U.S. Open at Pebble Beach by 15, you know what, it's nearly spotting the field. Best players in the world by four shots a day. That's that's like winning a, I know the Roland Garris is on. That's like winning six love, six love, six love every single day. So, yeah, for the people that didn't see him in the early 2000s, it's the greatest golf I've ever been around, played alongside, and even as an announcer, watched. Incredible. So to answer your question, equipment has to, has to just standardize for a little while so that you have a generation playing with exactly the same stuff. No one getting an advantage. 
And then we hopefully we get another freakishly good player out of that. Frank, I love that analogy. It's like being a rolling Garros and winning love, love, and love. Frank, you mentioned Elk. Elk, see, Elk, Elk is great. Elk's <laughs> a very, very good friend, and you're laughing already. But Elk's a very good friend. And I, with Elk, I have to always remind him, know your room, Elk. If I put you on the Daily Show, there's certain things you cannot say that you can say if I put you on the pod or if you and I are hanging out. I, there's so many Elk stories. Do you have a favorite Elk story that you can tell on this show? That I can tell on this show. So what's the rating on this show right now, Joe? We are midday. You know, you're part of the CBS family, Frank. You know this. Yeah. We are a midday show. Broad daylight. No, exactly. No, Elk was a teammate of mine. We played in three President's Cups together. He was a tremendous teammate. But I, And I also played against him a couple of times in the match play, uh, certainly match play. But I hated playing with him. He had the best backswing in golf. If, if you want to look at golf swings, go and look at Elk's. But, but Elk, you know... Um, I really can't tell a proper Elk story on, on this on this thing, but um, <laughs> I know. I mean, it's, it's funny as hell. Uh, but but yeah, he was as a teammate. It was great because he literally he he just wanted to beat everybody he played. And um, but Elk's Elk. I remember I, I first met him when I think we were late teenagers, and I knew he was good then. And you know what a resume too. Speaking of the PGA Championship, he won in '95, uh, won Players Championships. People still don't realize how good he was. But as a swinger of the club, I had a pretty good golf swing, but. I, w- I was jealous of Elk Swing. I really was. And he knew everybody was, too. And he would rub it in your nose. So, in a good way. But, uh, yeah, great teammate. Frank, that's why I asked you to tell a story, because deep down I knew you could not tell a story. But you can't. <laughs> and you, by the way, you had a great swing. You, you can speak to this really quickly on the way out the door. How beautiful was Elk Swing? I, I've actually got his golf book. He knows that. So, look, you can thumb through the pages. So, you can you know do like those old cinema stuff and see a swing. So people talk about Sam Snead. I'm a great Tom Weiskopf fan. Hopefully um, his health improves. But Elk's backswing, uh, you know, I'll go on record. I think it's the best backswing ever in golf. Uh, follow through, maybe you might you can pick a, a hole in it. I don't know. That's that's even being nitty poo. But the way he set the club, the way he stood up to it. And like I said, I hated playing with him because, you know, Woods, Woods was freakishly good in a different way. But Elk made it look easy, and I hated it when you were playing a game and somebody else made it look easy. It was hard to play alongside. <laughs> I get it. He is a CBS Sports Golf Analyst. He is a 15-time winner as a professional, top 10 finishes in all four majors, and a three-time member of the President's Cup team. Frank, so great to get caught up. I really appreciate you and your thoughts. That was an absolute blast. Great to have you back, Frank. Thanks, Jim, as always. Take care, Trade pros. Whether you specialize in service or new construction, Ferguson knows firsthand how much work goes into a long day on the job, which is why we're committed to offering the products and solutions to get every job done right. With over a thousand locations, an unmatched selection of specialty products, tools, and supplies, our pro pickup and same or next day delivery, you can trust that doing business with Ferguson will be the easiest part of your hard day's work. Visit ferguson.com to find a counter location near you. Smack off number 28 is now one month and one day away. June 24th is the big day. June 24th, the big day. Mark it down. Mark it on your calendar. Set it on your DVR. Plan to clear out time so you can pregame for the main event. And then take the time to process it all. Process it all in, I should say. Because the big day is a big day, and it's a blur, and it goes by fast. It's like the smack-off season itself. There are only 32 days left to get all your business handled. 32 days. Now, 32 days is just that, 32 days. Only 22 shows. Not much time. Not a lot of time to snag a golden ticket. 
Not a lot of time to RSVP. Not a lot of time to get your reps in. Not a lot of time to get up in here and start stirring up some bleep. Throwing them verbal hands. Running some championship caliber smack. Having put on 27 of these things, I can promise you the next 22 days, check that, shows are going to blow right by. So you want to get up in here, shoot your shot, throw your haymaker, let your hands go like I'm chumming up the waters. I'm trying to set off a feeding frenzy here. Now, just because the smack off is a legacy event with nearly three decades of uninterrupted history does not mean that there aren't still people listening right now who have no idea what the hell I'm talking about or why I'm talking about it. The listeners that heard something about a SmackDown, 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 SmackDown. They're wondering, are there wrestlers involved? This is exactly the way it should be, by the way. I like the fresh blood. In the jungle, new listeners, and we've had a bunch checking in lately. So, very quickly, for you new clones, and as a refresher, for the grizzled vets, here is a little breakdown of the event. So you know what I'm talking about. The Smack Off debuted all the way back in 1995, built on the premise of getting the very best callers in the jungle on the very same day. The other... 300 or so programs, I'm happy to carry the torch. Well, in my case, probably 250. In my case, maybe 100. How many weeks are there? 52, and I work 46. In my case, maybe 40 shows. Anyway, if we're all being honest, not about whatever the number is that I actually host, you know, I essentially shoulder the entire load. More of me, less of you, makes for a better program 99% of the time. But once a year, I do turn the program over to the top callers. The very first top caller, the very first winner of the Smack Off, was JT the Brick. Van Smack, what an honor to be a part of the first annual Great American Smack Off. The greatest city, the deepest tradition, and the best smack comes from New York and the bricks. When the earthquake hit, I didn't pick up the fish wrap to read about the damage. I looked to the box scores to see if the Knicks pulled out another gutty win. I have a passion to see Cal Ripken rupture a kidney this season than to see him break my beloved Lou Gehrig's record. Today is a celebration of smack. I compare my experience to when I pledged my fraternity back in college. For the first few months, I was a punk who had to wait on hold and pick and choose my spots to smack. Now I feel like the pledge master who gets the spank the new plebes on the butt while they say thank you jt the brick can i please have another he's right and that call in fact changed his life not my take but his take and that's part of why i call myself the idol maker because there's not just five gur in it there could be a life-changing moment in it there could be a career in it case in point jt's quarter century on the air since that day he's had a great career in this industry and he won the first ever smack off now since that day since that first smack off only 13 others have claimed the crown which makes 14 total smack off winners in 27 events more than half of them are split between three dudes a female has never won Shawnee, the Cabinasian, who had a mid-2000s dynasty, is the only clone to ever three-peat. 
Also, he parlayed his smack-off success into a very successful media career. There are two constants that I know, Jim. One, the only way that Shaq gets his name on both sides of the forum is with a can of spray paint and a ladder. And two, I know that from 11 to 3 Central Time every day, I'm going to be entertained. The influence of your show, frankly, Jim, has felt not only in your time slot, quite honestly, it's spilled over into the others. I mean, before your show came on down here, Jim, the typical call to the local afternoon show went something like, uh, yeah, Kenny, first-time caller. I was wondering if Mike Hampton is a lefty or a righty, and I'll hang up and listen. Now, Jim, thanks to the jungle, the typical call to the local afternoon show goes something like, uh, yeah, Kenny, first-time caller. I was wondering if Mike Hampton is lefty or righty, and I'll hang up and listen. I'm out. Yeah, major improvement, Jim. The Knicks really get it down here. The Cowboy Asian, Left in Laguna, the newest dominant force in the jungle. He first broke through in 2014 and has ripped three of the last six belts. He last hit the winner's circle in 2020. 911, what is your emergency? Yeah, Brandon Corona's being a total tool. Is he being a, wearing a female body inspector T-shirt? Yeah, and the sleeves are cut off. He's giving out wet willies. He's playing keep away with Lewis and Palmdale's prosthetic, and he's telling people his favorite planet is Uranus. I'm familiar with Brad and Corona. Is he belching the ABCs again? Dude, hurry. He's about to make Rich Flores do an impossible sit-up. Okay, you want me to come over and shoot him? You see, Jimmy, that's how you do your own cameo. And in closing, you said all week how important it was to sound crystal clear and call with a hard line. I know I sound pretty good. So here's my hard line. I hate Brad and Corona so much. I hope he has a heart attack next time he plays charades. Oh, uh, 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 holding your arm, uh, laying on the ground in pain. Brad? Brad? Speaking of which, then you have the GOAT, the BIC, Brad and Corona, the only caller with six rings, the winner of three of the last four events, the defending champ. Final side note, Rome, and this is true. Les was never in that helicopter in 2015, Jim. He took a picture in it, stepped out of it like a coward, and delivered that crappy fourth-place phone call from the runway while he sent Randall and the OC up in the chopper like a smack-off stunt penis buzzing your studio. God rest Randall's soul, by the way. Anyway, we knew Les was a gimmicky little bitch, but now we know he's also a lying gimmicky little bitch. And that's the worst kind of bitch, really. Also, kind of convenient that Les, Randall, and Rich Flores were the only people who knew about this. And Randall, well, Jim, let's just say Randall's watching the smack-off today with Trapper and Rick's dad. And, Jim, two out of the three of those dudes were likely killed by Les and Laguna and Rich Flores. You can hear all about it on my new podcast, Clone Killers. My quest to prove Rich Flores and Les and Laguna killed Randall and the OC and Trapper and Dana Point. Allegedly. Out. This dude is freaking ruthless. So, if you're new to the smack off, that's what a first ballot Jungle Hall of Famer sounds like. They're legends, all of them. They are the dudes who set the standard. But that doesn't mean that one of them is going to rip it again this year. Because the field, as always, is stacked. Mark and Hollywood... Vic and NoCal both already have their straps. They both have been upping their participation in the smack-off season thus far. You've got former champs. You never know if and when they show up. Mike and Indy, Iafrady, Jeff from Richmond, always dangerous on the day of if they do show. Then you've got dudes who have not won yet, but it feels like in some cases it's not a question of if but a matter of when. 
Rick in Buffalo, Caleb in Green Bay, Benny in Wisco. Would not shock me if any one of them got it done this year. What's shocking on some level is that none of them have gotten it done yet this year or gotten it done yet. This might be the year. And finally, you've got that new fresh blood, the golden ticket class, the seven clones that are already holding, including one dog who you just heard from and one chicken man who's come in of late. So if you're lost on any of this, I got you. Starting tomorrow, I will reintroduce the players and their body of work one by one. That's right. Starting tomorrow, player profiles get underway, meaning you will find out who these people are and why this show has the best callers in the business. Make sure you're there for it. Hey, Paul's dog, what's going on? Oh, roll over him, room. Paul just took me to James Kelly's Surfing Suds. I got the shampoo, ran the conditioner, ran the pedicure. Oh, but the blow dryer was scary. Hey, big head, mix in a towel. But I did ask fun at the dog park on his forehead. Lots of room to romp up there. Riding saw Tom Cruise parking his F-15. I said to him, can you hear me, Maverick? He's old. I have a message for the smack-off people. Should have let this sleeping dog lie. I'm the best in show. There's never been anybody as ruthless. Ram Cujo. Ram Rin Tin Tin. There's no one like me. I'm from their fur. There's no one that can walk me. My bark is impetuous. My bite is impregnable. When I'm just ferocious. Where I want your heart. Where I want to eat your leftovers. Praise be to dog. Roar. Mike. Scaring cowards and then fading into Bolivia. Rough me from route. Do it. We rock that dog every single time. Rock Consider him. that the official RSVP from Paul's dog. Bob Myers is my guest. Bob, it is so good to have you back. How are you, Bob? Hey, I'm good, Jim. Is the best part of that little... Um is the San Quentin legend the best? Is that the best part of that resume? I'm going to say it's either that or the fact that you are an inductee into the Monta Vista High School Athletic Hall of Fame. You'd have to tell me. But I think maybe <laughs> San Quentin by a nose? Maybe? <laughs> I think San Quentin, yeah. I think that's a little bit more hard to. Uh, I was sitting at the game last night and somebody asked me. I was sitting on the floor and the guy next to me said, So you play basketball in San Quentin? <laughs> I, said, I said, Actually, yeah, I have a few times. It's more interesting than, uh, than executive of the year, I can tell you that. It's more intimidating to me than going to the Monta Vista High School Athletic Hall of Fame induction ceremonies, although I haven't done either, and you have invited me a number of times. Hey, Bob, is there a way to really quickly reset this with the understanding that, you know, the audience turns over and people still ask you about this even courtside? Can you even just say really briefly when the last time you did that was, why you do that, what the experience is like? Yeah, you know, COVID screwed it up. Uh, I got hurt too, so a couple things. But what what it was early on is for the people that don't know, which I assume many don't. Um, about eight nine years ago, a guy I worked with, Kirk Lake, it was our owner's son, mentioned to me that he was playing basketball in San Quentin, and I couldn't understand how that was possible because San Quentin's a maximum security 
prison and um, to let somebody in there and, and to play basketball. And I was at that, that time in my life, and maybe still, I'm always looking for a good game and a, and a life experience. So walking into San Quentin, I'll never forget, um, you walk in there through about six different gates and you get no, you, you can't walk in with anything. No contraband is what they call it. And by the time you get through these huge steel doors, I looked to my left and Jim, I walked in there and there was a building to the left and it said adjustment center. That's what it says on the side of the building in this Gothic writing. And I asked the warden, I said, what's that? And he said, oh, that's death row. And I said, really? He said, yeah, that's the death row inmates up there. So that, that was my initiation. And then I walked down and um, you kind of walk down this hill and you look at the yard, so to speak. And, you know, people doing pull-ups and chin-ups and it's, you know, shirts off. And, and it's pretty damn intimidating. But I will say this, like I told the guy last night at the game, as far as a pickup game, um, they were the nicest guys. Now, I don't know what they did to get in there. I actually do know some of the guys now, some of the inmates. We actually hired one of them. He works our elevator operating at Chase Center. Um, and they were the they were the nicest guys in the pickup game and in incredible shape, as you can imagine, like incredible shape. And so I ended up going seven, eight, nine times. And the takeaway is this, Jim. Uh, this is my takeaway. Yours might be different. When you're around people like that, what I realized quickly was, had I grown up like a lot of these guys, maybe I'm in there. That's the takeaway. Like, I'm not better or worse. I got lucky. I grew up in, you know, two-parent household in the suburbs, and that gives you a pretty good head start on life. If I had been exposed to a lot of the things these guys had, I mean, I can't say I, I would have turned out any different. So that's my takeaway, but a, a, an unbelievable experience. I agree with you, and I'm glad you shared that. No, I agree with you, Bob. Bob Myers joining us. So, Bob, you and I, and I, you and I could talk about that for hours. It's fascinating. Thanks for sharing that. You and I have talked over the years also about your desire to appreciate everything that is happening as it's happening, knowing that, and especially knowing what the last two seasons have been like. What kind of thoughts do you have as this playoff run does unfold? That's really good, Jim. And that that show you we have we've I don't know how many years we've done, but. I appreciate you remembering that um, because I'm really trying. I, I we, when we went to the finals five years in a row, if I'm being honest, and I don't speak for the team, I don't speak for Steve Kerr, I speak for myself. I wish I had enjoyed it more while it was happening. Um, and so I promised myself before this year, I thought we had a pretty good team, and I said, whatever happens this year, I'm going to enjoy this, man. This is too hard a job not to enjoy. And so I'm trying to do that now. Again, it's not my nature. I'm not one of these kind of like. Steph Curry, who I have huge envy for because he enjoys life almost better than anybody I know. Uh, I'm not built like that, but I am trying, and I'm appreciating this year. I, you know, part of, part of this year is that when you stop winning like we did and we had the worst record in the league two years ago and then we lost in the play-in last year, I think I appreciated how hard it is to do what we did. And to get back, it's kind of like a second shot <laughs> In, in a little bit to say, you know, if you could go back to high school, I'd appreciate it more. If I could go back to this, so I'm trying, and I really am. I mean, I'm, it's a fun thing, and I, I think I was thinking today before I, I knew I was going to talk to you. I wanted, as in my job, it's to build a team. I wanted to see what Steph Clay and Draymond. I wanted them to get beat. I should say. I wanted to say, let's let them play until they get beat, and we never really got that. I mean, Toronto beat us. Um, and that's fine, but, but I wanted to see a team where they could try again, and, and we're kind of getting to see that. That's, that's fulfilling. 
Bob Myers, my guest. You know, Bob, what you just said is so interesting to me because I feel like I'm a little bit like you. As I look back, and you know, not to be morbid, but as I look back on my life and some of the things that have happened, I find myself thinking the same thing that you just said. I wish I had enjoyed that more when it was happening because it was so hard to do that, whatever that is. And then you said, I wish I was more like Steph, who just is kind of built for that and that you might not be built for that. But you're right. Like when I look at Steph and I don't know Steph, but when I look at Steph, I just see joy. But now I know he works. I know he grinds. I know he cares. But what is that? Is he built like that? Is it hard wiring because he just seems so joyful you know what it is who he is and again it's true this isn't an act um that's who he is my my wife's brother-in-law who passed away was the same way some people are born that way you know they just you probably know some other people in your life like that jim like they're the ones that make it fun and it's not like their life's perfect steph curry's life is not perfect people listening might say trust me it's not um, it's great, but he had to work for what he has. And his life, the other day we were walking, um, we were leaving in, uh, I think we were in Memphis, um, and, and I said, I'm going to walk back to the hotel. And I asked him, I said, does it suck that you can't walk back with us? Like you have to take the bus and security. And he looks at me and goes, yeah, man. It's like, I want to walk sometimes. And now people listening might be like, he, can't, he cannot walk down the street. Now, you might say, who cares? But my point is that there's always trade-offs in life, but to his, how he lives, it's the thing I'm most envious of. It's not his jump shot. It's not his money. It's not his fame. It's how much he enjoys every day. And he just does, Jim. And look, it's not because he's rich and famous. There's a lot of, you know this, you know this, Jim. There's a lot of people that are rich and famous that are very unhappy. And uh, he's not. And, you know, win, lose, draw, he's, who he is and so makes him fun to be around i agree with you bob i i envy that quite a bit i i really do appreciate that about him bob myers joining us so bob what about clay for instance what does it mean to you personally to see clay thompson back playing in the conference finals after everything he's been through physically it's it's you know he two years jim and i didn't you know i used to go with the team more in the regular season than i do now as far as road games but because i don't as much i would see clay in the facility all the time over the last two years, just rehabbing, just rehabbing. It's lonely. And um, you, you get forgotten. I mean, it's, you know how it is in, in this society, like out of sight, out of mind. Um, but Clay has this insatiable hunger for basketball. It's, it's, I've said this before. It's like water to Clay. He has to have it. And so he first was upset. And then, like, you know, the stages of grief to go through that twice and then angry and, and then finally now, he's, he's at this great peace. He, 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 he got something he loves taken from him. And for people that listening, he never got hurt. Like, this guy never missed games. And then to have two catastrophic injuries and to have to watch us play and not be able to play. Some players don't love basketball, Jim. Some athletes don't love their sport. And that's fine. They can do whatever they want. He, loves, he would play for $5. Now, he makes a lot of money, and he should. He would play um, for free. He just loves it. And to see him just playing basketball at a high level again and competing, um, pretty, pretty awesome. It's, it's an unbelievable story. And the fact that we're back at a high level, um, it's, it's, it's really
really great to see him out there. It's amazing. Bob Myers joining us. Bob, how about a thought or two on Steve Kerr? And I mean this in the sense that there seems to be, I hate to be the guy who goes, there seems to be this perception, but there seems to be this perception that <laughs> Kerr just kind of rolls the ball out there on the court for players, and then he sits down. When people think that, or if anybody thinks that, how much are they underestimating what he does as a coach and a leader? Okay, well, you're obviously well accomplished. Like, I bet people think, Jim, you show up and put the microphone on and just start talking to people, right? That's probably what they think you do. Man, I wish. I know that's right, right? But people think that. Oh, Rome just shows up and, hey, this guest, here's Bob, you know, whatever. He'll just ask me a few questions. I know your preparation. And, and, and people don't need to know that, but I know what it is. But I don't know how hard it is to do your job. So people that critique anyone's job, my job, I mean, people think – I could have, I would have drafted this guy. That guy. That's that's like twenty percent of the job. I mean, so the, the the job is Draymond Green is screaming and yelling, and you got to go calm him down. I mean, there's there's different part like your job. So with Steve, that is completely unfair. You know, managing people, managing a staff, managing expectations for for about four or five years, Jim, we were expected to win every single game, every single game. And for three years, I think we were favored. I think in the Durant years, I don't know that we were underdogs in any game. So you walk, you, you give anybody an occupation where the only outcome that's acceptable is winning every single game and tell me how that's easy to navigate. So look, I can't, people are going to think whatever they think. I learned a long time ago when people called our 73 and nine season a failure, I decided I get to decide what that season meant, not them. So with Steve, the beauty of Steve is he has a personal gratification. The guy's got eight rings. He has eight championships. So it's, he's human. He hears that stuff too. But to knock what he does just because he's got good players uh, is, is unfair. But, but people will do it, Jim. And, and I know him. I see him every day. Coaching professional sports is a brutal job. It is a brutal job um, in so many different ways. And, Jim, you're probably closer to it than most. Uh, and he's done an unbelievable job. And he's an unbelievable human being. So I'm lucky to kind of have been around him for the last, I think, eight years now. Well, I agree with you, Bob. I, he, he doesn't have to. He doesn't need to. And I know because, although I don't speak to Steve very often anymore, I used to interview him quite a bit when he played for the Bulls. So you always saw that character. Even as a college player, you saw that kind of character. And you saw what he was about. You know, Bob, I'm just kind of following you around. But you mentioned Draymond also for the record. I've always loved Draymond. I loved him in Michigan State when I used to talk to him for the first time. I love Draymond. Not a perfect individual, but none of us are. But what is something about Draymond that people don't know that they should know? That he listens. Um, that's what people don't know. That he he was doing his podcast, which you probably heard it. It's great. And I, I, said, I said, hey, man, I said, you swearing too much on your podcast. And he said, you think so? I said, yeah. I said, don't do that. I said, it doesn't, you're smarter than that. Um, you can, you can use other words. I said, you can swear. I'm not telling you not to swear. Um, but, but you're turning some people off. And I said, there's an audience that some, I don't know if it's 10, 20, 30% that you're, you're not getting because you're, you're doing that. And so he will look you in the eye and he says, all right. And then the next two weeks later he goes, Hey man, I'm not swearing as much. So there's this perception that Draymond is unintelligent, won't listen, thinks he knows everything. That's not true. Now, he, you do have to hit him between the eyes. He's, a, he's an alpha. So if, you, if he senses fear uh, or lack of conviction, he will run over you. Um, he, he smells that out. But if you come to him, it's not just because I 
I mean, the job I'm in, he, he respects people, but you have to come honestly, you know, authentically with him. Um, so I would say that about him. I think people listening probably know he's smart. I'm sure some people don't like him at all. Uh, I would say this, like you said, Jim, not perfect. I, I like the imperfection. The thing that I like, have been around athletes for a long time and then representing them, and I like guys that are real. That's it. The thing I don't like is the ones you, that they won't show you who they are. So Draymond, good, bad, ugly, that's who he is. I, I like that because um, that's who most of us are. But the ones that I struggle more with are the ones where they pretend to be something they're not. We know, I mean, people know who he is. Like him or not, that's who he is. And I think authenticity is attractive to everybody. I agree with you. Nobody likes fake. Bob Myers joining us. Bob, one last thought, and I always appreciate our time so much, but if we were to go back to when you made that trade for Andrew Wiggins, there were so many who were happy to call him a bust and say things like, the guy just does not have the competitive fire to maximize that talent. He's just not a winner. What did you see in him? and in maybe in your locker room and coaching staff to let you know that he could not only fit but be successful in this environment? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, and that's part of the job is doing what you think is right in the face of some headwinds, and I don't, I've don't. i made mistakes. I'll make more. Um, but with that one, I just thought, we thought in the front office, there's something in this. There's something there. Um, and, and clearly he, there was a lot of question marks about Andrew. That's why he was available in a trade. But I had watched, prior to the trade, I'd watched a lot of his games because I had, we had the idea that this was maybe a possibility. So I started watching that entire year. And, you know, he had great games. He had games that weren't as good. And, and I thought, and I still believe, if you, everybody, if you put them in a, what you think is a situation where they can thrive and they're talented and you put those two things together, you, you, you got to hope you can get some results. And, and so that's life. You know, you take somebody that's talent, you put them in the right environment, that's a recipe for success. And we thought that. And sometimes it doesn't work, Jim, but with Andrew – He's an unbelievable guy, uh, very soft-spoken. Um, he had been raked over the coals, right or wrong, for most of his career, probably beaten down, great, huge expectations on him. And we thought, you know what, this guy has tremendous talent. It's in there. He's young. He doesn't miss games. That's another thing people may or may not know. Never misses games. Um, so that's a huge thing. He's available. He must love to play. I mean, half the guys in sports are looking for reasons to sit out, doesn't do that. And so I saw that part as this guy must love to play. Because in the NBA, money is guaranteed. Trust me, like if a, some guys are banged up and they'll say, you know, I got my ankle, I need another week. I need another two weeks. Andrew plays. Um, so I saw that as a huge positive too. And, and it's so satisfying, to, not for me, Jim, not to validate a trade, for, to see him in this moment, um, to see somebody that was kind of, criticized at a pretty decent level succeeding for him like to see him smiling last night that's a that's a cool part of the job to watch a player kind of get the recognition they deserve so Bob finally I got to ask really quickly so as somebody who won an NCAA championship as somebody who played the game at a high level somebody who's at the top of his profession you know you you are a professional you conduct yourself accordingly what goes through you in that moment when he rises up and he throws one down on Luca the way he did last night what did that feel like for you what did that feel like to Bob Myers you know, there's some things I remember when I, my first All-Star game was like in 2000, and it was in the Bay Area, and Vince Carter was in the slam dunk contest. And he did that dunk where he did, I think, a windmill, and you couldn't not get out of your chair. Like, you didn't, you didn't even think about it. So you just jumped up because it was so – that's what it caused you to do. 
same thing last night with, with Wiggins. I mean, I just, like, popped up. And I was sitting on the floor, and Mahomes was sitting between me and our owner. Uh, he was there with, I, I, I think, his new wife. Or, um, and, and I looked at him, and I just – he said, man, <laughs> he said, that's an athlete. And I said, yeah, that is just – that was – as a fan of basketball, I mean, I was I can't jump like that, so let's never pretend that was true. But that is that's why we watch sports, Jim, is for that elite athleticism, those moments where it's kind of like that is not normal. Like people can't do that. Like even NBA players, even Doncic after the game was like, yeah, that's that pretty good. Um, that's why you go to the game, you know, to see that stuff in person. I know it was good on TV, but I popped out of my chair and I'm a cynical, hardened executive that's seen hundreds of playoff games and um it was pretty good man i got it i gotta be honest that that's an amazing though. response by you he is the golden state warriors president of basketball ops and gm a two-time nba executive of the year the thing is bob i try to pick my spots very carefully in talking to you on this program i would love to do it more than i do but out of respect for you and your time i, I gotta pick my spots but it always is awesome i have such a great appreciation for you respect for you admiration for you and i'm so glad we could do it again especially this time of year so i know there's still work to be done but i really do appreciate it bob thanks so much and i appreciate the friendship absolutely man i love coming on the show anytime i can so to take care jim and any hey if you ever want to come to a game let me know good night now